siblings in Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Parent, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in whose name we are baptized. Amen. Legend has it that there was a seminary professor who one day came into his classroom full of students. He put his bag down, and he took up the chalk by the blackboard, and he drew one gigantic down arrow on the blackboard. He drew that, dusted the chalk off of his hands, picked up his jacket and his briefcase, and walked out of the classroom. Why did he do that? That's rhetorical. It's not going to be in a second. I'll ask again. Given that seminary is a school where pastors are taught, and it's actually the the point in any pastor's life where they are the most eager, righteous, and totally enlightened, if pastors are ever those things, it's at seminary, the students in the classroom took to analyzing and debating the meaning of the down arrow. So what do you think, it's not rhetorical this time, what would you do if I opened a sermon by saying, sibling with Christ, grace and peace to you, put this on the screen, and then walked away. Why is a down arrow the whole message? Go ahead. I can wait. There's not a lot of quiet in my house, so this is great. (laughs) Yeah, what? Giving directions to go downstairs or something? Yep. So they know to go down, so it's directions to go down. That's right. Why else is a down arrow the entirety of a lesson in a seminary classroom? Yeah, Harper. About baptism. And the Holy Spirit comes down to you. Yeah, perfect. We're going to talk more about that. Good answer. Why else? Anything else? Anybody else? Like thumbs down. Like bad classroom. <laughs> That's so good. Maybe. Why else? Anything else? Yeah, thumbs down. No good. Yeah, I think the seminary students decided and debated a lot of things. Probably about what it was not and what it was, right? It's probably not like everybody get down on the floor right now. It's probably not your grades are going down. Maybe not. Thumbs down. Maybe. It's probably not you're going down like a wrestling takedown or a busting up a crime ring. It's probably not check your shoes or your zipper, I'm guessing. It's probably not take a nap. Sorry, parents, but I don't think that's where we're going. Could be Jesus' teachings about the lowest and the least of these, like let the little children come to me. It probably has something to do with God coming down, the Holy Spirit coming down. But I think I have an idea of who this professor was, and I think it's even bigger than just that. I'm guessing, I think, his point was to emphasize that the direction that God moves and meets us is always tenaciously and foundationally God coming down to us. Always. Not the other way. Not our reaching up to gain God. And this statement, this truth, and this conviction, particularly the Lutheran conviction that God always makes the first move and God's action is the only real saving action, this truth is the truth that makes Christianity so countercultural, difficult, and even scandalous today, particularly in our culture, because this runs contrary to all of our hard-earned and high-achievement systems of doing in our lives. 
One of my favorite hobbies and things to do in my free time is to play board games. And while I tolerate Chutes and Ladders and Candyland and Monopoly and I enjoy Cribbage, what I really mean are designer strategy board games. The past decade or so has seen a big renaissance in board game types and categories. I have just a few of them, but we won't spend too much time or judgment on this slide. But say you want to play something like, oh, I don't know, pretend to be a tree and play photosynthesis and play trees that compete for light points. Well, there's a game for that. How about run a modern art gallery and run art auctions to compete for the most valuable pieces? Well, there's a game for that. If you want to build a castle, a cathedral, a library, or a winery, there are games for that. If you want to play in an escape room or do photo shoots or pretend to marry Mr. Darcy in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, if you want to pretend that you're honeybees in space, there's a game for that and more. And we have a game night on January 20th at Farmington Lutheran if you want to learn more about some of these. Most games, most of these employ some sort of point system to determine a winner. Most games even have like three levels of tiebreakers to make sure that we know who the winner is. The point system might be called gold or money or honor or simply the ubiquitous victory points, but in almost all cases, all that I can think of, there is a process of competing and clawing for points with other players to win the game. Never have I played a board game or a card game where the purpose was not to win or finish first or to arrive and come out on top. I have never been told at the onset of a game by the rule book or a teacher that I have already won either. That would be a strange game indeed. I wrote part of this sermon in a board game cafe yesterday in Burnsville. I perused their shelves and thought about asking the owners if there were any game that fit this description where the point wasn't to win or where you've already won when you started playing. There's nothing really like that. But there is one notable genre that's an exception. And it's found in a kind of game called role-playing games. These are games where you typically sit down with other people and you inhabit the role of another character. And then you undertake quests or adventures together, usually with the guidance of a leader called the Game Master. Dungeons and Dragons, or D&D, was probably the best well-known of these. And while that caused some undue concern in the 80s, these kinds of games can be set in outer space, or in 1930s Europe, or in Norway. And while you can gain accomplishments and earn some victories, there is no real winning in those games. Asking how to win a game like that is kind of like trying to divide zero by zero in a calculator. You get error or undefined because that's not the point of it. But I kept searching around still, and eventually I came across this thought as to how you might describe winning or how you come on top and win role-playing games. And the thought is this. We win when we tell a good story. We win when we tell a good and complete story together. Something that I am convinced of from my studies and my experience is that the defining characteristic of human beings is that we are storytellers and story listeners. That instead of intelligence or wisdom defining us, which is what homo sapiens means, wise humans, we're really what John D. Niles calls homo narons, or the storytelling people. And we can see this in our past and in our present. 
from early cave paintings that depict adventures and stories to ancient oral storytelling traditions like where we get our scriptures from to ancient Greek dramas. Aristotle says that it's perfectly natural for all people to delight in storytelling. And look around today at the sheer quantity and volume of novels and TV shows and movies and the video game industry. Just how we talk about our lives and share experiences. We tell stories. Those are all stories. And they all have some things in common. For example, Aristotle again says, all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's true whether you like the beginning, middle, and end or not. Or if you're like Pastor Kristen and have a low tolerance for suspense, you can skip to the ending and read that first to make sure it all turns out okay. That still doesn't change how the story goes or the order. But stories also inform who we are. And they shape our identity. And the faith that we share in the gospel story of Jesus' baptism today, we remember as a people of God that baptism tells us the defining story of who we are. Sometimes when Kristen or I have talked to people who want to be baptized or families who want their kids to be baptized, we use this book by Daniel Erlander. It's called Let the Children Come. It's a baptism manual. And among the descriptions of baptism and the illustrations in the book are this picture. It's a couple of kids or a baby looking at a TV that says buy, like purchase. When my own pastor dad was talking to Kristen and me about baptizing our oldest kiddo, he told us a story that he'd evidently told dozens of times to parents in baptism conversations. It's a story about me. My dad, as long as I can remember, uh, listened to Twins baseball on the radio, John Gordon calling the games, all summer since I was very little. And I remember this as far as I can remember. When someone listens to the same radio station or watches the same television network over and over again, one starts to hear the same advertisements over and over again, the same radio jingles on repeat, and they start to get stuck in one's head, right? That's by design. But somehow it was still striking to my dad when he caught me, barely articulate toddler Ben, going around the house singing an advertising jingle that had been playing on the radio. I don't know what it was or what I was advertising for. It doesn't really matter. But my dad said it was at that moment when I realized that I, as a parent, was not in control of the narrative that I could not determine all of the voices, stories, and narratives that would try to inform or claim my child's life. And I, Ben, recognize this with my own kids. Like if I sing to them, or to you, you save big money, you save big money when you shop Menards. I was even in tune. Good job, damages. <laughs> Musical Menards, right? I'm telling their narrative for them, right? Or when you see this sign, what happens? Arby's, we have the meats. Yes, my kids yell this when we're driving around. And lest you think it's just my kids, I put this in front of confirmation kids last year, and almost without prompting, the whole room said, Arby's, we have the meats. We're not in control of all of the narratives. We tell this to parents who are seeking to baptize their kids or them baptize themselves. There are so many competing narratives that try to get to our kids and to us, and there is no easy victory over or rising above the sheer quantity or marketing energy behind them. And when we realize that, it becomes all the more important to offer a competing story. 
And so what we do is we win by telling a good story, by telling the story, that our lives are defined by God's story, that we are beloved children of God no matter what. And that is the story that baptism tells. Jesus gets baptized today. That is how the Gospel of Mark starts. He says, basically, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, and then, bam, Jesus is in the water. The heavens are torn open. They're ripped open, and the Spirit, like a dove, comes down, and Jesus is named and claimed. That rending open of the heavens, that's the same word used to describe the tearing of the curtain in the temple when Jesus is crucified. The word in Greek is schizomai, which is where we get our word for schism, a split or a tear. And the sense that we're supposed to be given here is that something has happened that cannot be repaired or restored or put back to the way things were. In the coming down of Jesus, Mark is telling us that the world cannot be put back to the way it was. And in baptisms, the same thing happens. Something happens that cannot be undone or taken away. Our story becomes a part of, wrapped up in, completed with God's story. And it happens through water and word, symbol and promise. Just a little bit of hydrogen and oxygen that have existed from the beginning of time and words of naming and claiming spoken to you by someone else on behalf of the God who created you and the water that you were washed into. And this is a counter story to the multitude of narratives that insist that our identity is defined by being a consumer or an income earner or a winning athlete, or having a specific physique, or by perfect grades or academic accolades, or by the mistakes that you've made, or winning choices in all of life's games that you've played. One of the definitions of sin that I teach confirmation students is that it is something that separates us from God. Lots of these worldly narratives try hard to do that, to insert themselves as the dominant story in our lives. Even some Christian narratives can do that, especially ones that insist that our worthiness and salvation are a matter of our own efforts, our own prayers, our own political positions, or our piety. But none of these are the defining story. Baptism is that story the belonging to a loving God who comes down always, insistently, without your earning or effort. But that's a hard thing, especially for Americans sometimes, because we sure like the idea of earning or effort. We're trained to keep score, to rise up, and to win. At K-1 Youth Basketball yesterday, which I'm coaching, it's a level at which, by rule, you cannot keep score. At the end of the scrimmage, one of my kiddos came up afterwards and said, Coach, I kept score in my head, and we lost. And I said out loud, what matters most is that we're learning. But what I thought was, I know. (laughs) Because I was counting too. Why did I do that? There are so many upward, ladder-climbing, bootstrap stories that are our appealing, celebrated stories. They're about climbing the ladder, rising stars, getting a leg up, leveling up, underdogs ascending to greatness. And it's so easy to get caught up in thinking that those are the greatest stories and that this is somehow how we reach God by also just going up with our own effort. And truth be told, I get it. 
I'm not always sure how to be a disciple that recognizes our faith. It's a faith that Martin Luther says, we cannot by our own understanding or effort know Jesus or come to him. But we also have this faith that we live out in a world where professional and personal improvement are so predominant. Because I sure like winning those strategy games. I like making progress and measuring it and making a difference. And I also know that personal, spiritual, and financial discipline aren't bad things, but it is so easy to get caught up in them. And I know that ultimately chasing that up burns us up, and the would-be defining narratives and idols of consumerism and productivity and perfectionism will just use us up and move on to more willing practitioners when we're all done. But despite all that, I know the story of God and of baptism isn't this. It's this. And I need reminders that this is the story sometimes. So I'm reminding you this morning, and you on the live stream wherever and whenever. I saw this on the marker board in the library room this week. Some youth, I think, wrote Jesus was here, and then someone else crossed out was and put is, which is right on. Ultimately, we cannot ourselves will a win in life. There are no Jesus points like there are victory points. The real win condition is that we win or really we live when we tell a good story, the good story. And God in Jesus Christ authors that story, our story. It's one of those stories where we already know the ending. And unlike any games that I could find, we have already won that one. This story ends in life. There is still hardship and death, but there's also an empty tomb and resurrection and the promise of Jesus' presence here till the end of the age and the giving of the Holy Spirit and God ultimately reaching down to raise us up to new life too. All of it is grace coming down to us this way. So children of God, try this please. If you would, please make the sign of the cross on your own foreheads. And please say, I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. And there's nothing I can do to change that. Nothing I can do to change that. Siblings in Christ, remember this. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Farmington Lutheran Church, its ministries, and how to connect to this part of the body of Christ by going to FarmingtonLutheran.com. Peace be with you.